Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbind by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. This is the word of God for the people of God. So Jesus decides to go to Jerusalem. He's going to the place that is the seat of power. In that region at that time, the military, the government, and religious authorities all are seated in Jerusalem. So Jesus has intentionally chosen to go to the place where power resides, at least human power. Mark tells us that the place he enters is the temple, which means that he's decided to confront the religious leaders, not the governmental or military leaders, but he's focused on these religious leaders, those who are running the temple. It's a little hard to tell if this is a spur-of-the-moment decision that he decides to begin to turn over the tables and drive out those who are buying and selling. Or if he's been thinking about this for a while, we know that he's been to the temple before. He's seen what's going on there. Did he plan this ahead? Or did he just decide at the moment? I mean, he has intentionally decided to go to Jerusalem to address the religious authority of his day. Perhaps he also had this particular situation in mind as well. Mark does not tell us very much about what Jesus said. But characteristic of Mark, he gives us this story full of action which amplifies or in which Jesus embodies the teaching that Mark records. In verse 17, Mark puts it like this. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, it's helpful to know that at this time, the way the temple is constructed, what is happening is happening in a place called the Court of the Gentiles. It's a place where Jews and Gentiles alike could come, sort of an entryway or lobby to the holier places of the temple. It's also important to remember that it was at this time, important to bring an animal sacrifice as part of your worship. So as you're entering into the holier places where you might offer sacrifice, there is this court of the Gentiles where you could purchase a dove or a pigeon most likely to take on in for your worship. If you're a person coming from out of town, like Jesus and his disciples were doing, you probably don't have a pigeon in your pocket so it's helpful to have somebody there selling what you're going to need to move in to the worship experience. But there are some problems with what's going on. 
what apparently is happening is not only business, but what has become corrupt business. It has become a place of exploitation. Our Bible scholars point out to us and remind us that a Jew of that day going to the temple to worship would need to pay the temple tax. But you can't pay the temple tax with just any currency. You have to have a special coin, the temple mints. So if you came with your own money, you don't pay with your own money. You have to get a coin. So you need a currency exchange. Good enough, except for you have to pay a fee to make the exchange. And then if you don't have the exact right change, there's a further fee to get exactly what you need. And we begin to see that there's a whole series of obstacles in terms of what you have to pay and how you can get the right thing to pay it before you ever get to worship. But then further, some of the Bible scholars point out, the records indicate that if you needed to get a pigeon or a dove, that it also, in the Jewish law, said it had to be without blemish. So you have the situation that even if you bring your own and you go into the priest and present it, it's easy for the priest to say, oh no, this one will not do. You have to go back out and purchase another one. Very convenient if you are a part of the business enterprise that's charging for those animal sacrifices. And then some of the Bible scholars say the records indicate that the price outside the temple would be one thing. By the time you get into the temple, if you have to purchase an animal for sacrifice, the price might be 10 or 20 times higher. So this has become a corrupt place, a place of abuse, a place where the priest and the businessmen are taking advantage of all the common people who are coming to this place for worship. Therefore, you end up with a situation in which something that's intended to facilitate worship had actually become a block or an obstacle to worship. And once we envision that kind of scene, then it makes so much more sense when we read what Jesus says when He gets there, "...my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations." But you have made it a den of robbers. The religious authorities and the business people are colluding to rob every person who comes for worship. Prayer and worship are designed as a way to connect us with God. But these practices that are going on are completely contrary to helping anybody experience a prayerful and quiet entry into worship and a connection with God. I've been reading a book by Dr. Karen Armstrong. She is a religious historian at Oxford University in England. Her book, the one I'm reading now, is called 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life. She's writing, trying to kind of build a bridge between world religions, trying to figure out how we can do more to combat the violence and abuse that we hear about and see so often in the news headlines. She wants the different leaders and participants in the major world religions to come together to bring more compassion and more peace into our world. She says what 
she thinks could help is for us all to know that just like we have the golden rule in our scriptures talking about treat another as you want to be treated is that all the world religions have a teaching or a saying or an axiom similar to that. So she says, what if all of us took that and raised it to the forefront and made it one of our directives by which we live? I told you a few weeks ago there was even a group in Tulsa that was working on this, asking the city council who approved this idea to make Tulsa golden, to try to practice the golden rule, to try to embody compassion and decisions that were being made from city government all the way through individual behavior. Well, when in the book she begins to lay out these steps, I think it connects to what we're reading in our passage today. She writes that the first step is to learn about compassion. And in that chapter, she writes a lot about the history of these six major world religions that she's writing about and how they came to this place that they have the golden rule, if you will, at the core of their teaching and how we might use that if we understood that peoples from around the world all held that in common. Her second step is to look at your own world. She suggests we look at our own life and our family life and our workplace and our nation and say, is there a place where I can bring more compassion? Is there a place where I could make a difference in terms of my own sphere of influence, in terms of how I conduct myself? Her third step is to have compassion for yourself. In that chapter, she talks a lot about self-examination, and introspection it's an invitation almost so similar to what we have in the season of lent where we're called to spend some more time reflecting on our lives and how they measure up in terms of the life of christ and the call of god for us to be followers of christ she talks about how having compassion for ourselves is hard for some people and that we need to work on that where we can recognize our pain but also let God heal that and use that to move us further. The fourth step she simply calls empathy. It's an extension of that third step where she begins to say, if we are able to recognize our own pain and suffering in our lives, we become better at recognizing that in someone else's life. And even though others can't see the pain we carry within us, we need to remember that we cannot see the pain and the suffering that someone else may have gone through as well. And she says this kind of awareness or empathy leads us into more compassionate action. She gives a whole series of examples. I'll share just a couple with you. One of them is she talks about Gandhi. She reminds us that Gandhi grew up in a relatively privileged life. He became an attorney. He was from India, but he's working in South Africa. But one day, he's riding on a train. He's seated in a section where he thinks it's just fine, but as the train begins to fill up, they come to him and tell him, you can't sit in this section. No colored people can sit in this section. And because he has brown skin, he's considered one who can't be there. He refuses to give up his seat. At the next stop, they remove him forcibly. They throw him off the train. That experience changed the trajectory of his life. The violence he experienced personally helped him develop an empathy or compassion for all people who are suffering, particularly people suffering at the hands of an apartheid government. 
he begins to work and dedicates the rest of his life to working to change that. It fuels his life's work and direction. Dr. Armstrong also talks about a woman in Wisconsin that works with abandoned children. Her name is Patty Anglin. She says she does this work with children who are abandoned, many who have special needs, who need extra tending and care, and they've been abandoned. She wants to care for them. But she says this comes from her own life experience. She says that she was put in foster care or in an orphanage when she was growing up. And she experienced it as a particularly harsh environment. And she says the care or lack of care, if you will, made her life miserable. It was terrible. And so she says that she believes she can empathize with children who have been abandoned because they have some similar feelings of being an outcast, of being so afraid when you're set aside from being miserable growing up and wondering if you were going to have a place in this world. She says she thinks she can understand a little bit of what they're going through and she wants to alleviate that pain and care for them as best she can. Empathy can lead us to action. Dr. Armstrong points that out in her book, but I think we see it in the text today of Jesus deciding to go to Jerusalem and then going to the temple and seeing the business practices and the abuse and the corruption of what is happening and how the everyday person is being exploited by those in charge. And he empathizes or identifies with their plight. Maybe he even experiences it himself when he goes there to worship. But at any rate, he decides it's time to stop all that nonsense. And so he stops the buying and the selling of the animals and he turns over the tables and the chairs of those who are doing the currency exchange and begins to declare to them that this all has to stop. For this is to be a place of worship and prayer. That this is to be a house of prayer, not a place of corruption and exploitation and abuse. Now Mark does an interesting thing right after he tells this story beyond where we read. The next six verses tell stories about Jesus teaching the disciples about prayer and faith, faith and prayer, and how important those are, and how those are to be the foundation of their life as a disciple of His. So the good news is not only that Jesus is standing up for justice and standing against abuse and injustice, but He's reminding all of us that our lives and all of the work He's doing is to be grounded in this conversation with God. It's to be grounded in our own prayer life. He's pointing out that prayer is central to who we are. It is our connection to God that sustains us. He is saying, even in the face of injustice, it's prayer that leads us and guides us and sustains us in all of this. In fact, he's saying that having prayer and faith changes everything. Week to week, I talk to a fair number of people 
I'm here at the church who are going through difficulties, who are struggling with what's going on in their lives. Recently, I talked to one of our members. She was telling me about losing her job and how devastating that was to be cut loose after all the years she had dedicated to that company. How frustrating it was to hear that the company was downsizing and then to hear that she was on the list and her loyalty and commitment and good work seemed to count for nothing. So she said in the midst of all that, she began to pray. And she was trying to pray through all the pain she was dealing with. She said at the same time, she also began to put in applications for new jobs. She said it happened more than once where she got an application put in, then she got a phone call, then she went for an interview, and she thought, this is it. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to be back to work in no time. And then they didn't select her. And she said the cycle would just start all again of her feelings of rejection and wondering if she was ever going to be able to find another job. But she says she just continued to pray through all of that, that God would lead her and guide her and show her where she needed to end up. Then she says one day when she was here at church, she heard about a job opportunity. So she followed up on it. But then she realized it was just a volunteer opportunity. But she said... She had the time, and she sort of sensed maybe God was prompting her to go ahead and volunteer. And so she did, and she began to volunteer at this organization. And before very long, one thing after another fell in place, and they offered her a full-time paying job. She says it's fantastic, that she loves it. It's so much more consistent, she says, with her faith than what she was doing before. Even though it's a completely different arena of work, she says she loves it because of the people orientation and this idea of serving others in need fits so nicely with her faith. She believes that God was at work in all of that. She says she believes that it was through her continual prayer conversation with God that she was prepared to be open to this new work. And even though she had described it being a painful journey, she also felt like God was working with her throughout all of those experiences. Well, there's one last thing here I want us to notice before we move into communion. It's in that very last verse we read today. Verse 19, Mark writes, And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Now, this could be just a timeline Just a sentence to help us know what time of day it was and what was happening. But Mark writes in such a compact style, I think maybe more's going on here. So often when he gives us a little turn of phrase like this that might seem insignificant, he's really alluding to something much bigger. What if Mark is reminding us that Jesus and his disciples regularly withdrew from work for rest and refreshment, and for prayer. What if rather than just a timeline comment, Mark is reminding us between Jesus saying, this is to be a house of prayer for all peoples, and just before he gives us several teachings about prayer and faith, he reminds us that Jesus and his disciples practice withdrawing for rest and refreshment and for prayer and maybe that should be a reminder to all of us that that's important in our life of faith 
This past week, I was gone for about 48 hours from Tulsa. I went over to Camp Egan, about a dozen other people with me for a Sumatonga retreat, just a place of rest and refreshment and prayer. No programming included. Times of silence where we do our best to let go of the distractions of the world and really the distractions in our own mind so that we can hear God more clearly. So that we can sense God's spirit in ministry with our spirit more fully. It's just a time to withdraw, to be a way to connect with God in a more powerful way. There's lots of ways to do it. You don't have to leave town. Our 40-day Lenten devotional helps you if you have one of those or you get it on your email. It's time to stop. Say a prayer. Pay attention to God. Listen for God. Or we have the upper room devotional books in the hallways, on the racks, all the time, year-round. They give you a daily devotional and a scripture reading. All kinds of resources online as well that help you. Why not make that kind of commitment? I put a question at the end of your outline that you might think about and pray about while you wait your turn for communion. Why not make that commitment today to a life of more intentional prayer?